0: Welcome to The Storyboard, a podcast about the creative minds behind today's leading film, television, and commercial productions. We explore the topics affecting today's top content creators from process to politics and anything in between. The Storyboard is a joint production brought to you by Nice Shoes and Sound Lounge, leaders in post-production audio and video. I'm Sean Grace, and we're recording this conversation in one of the many plush studios here at Sound Lounge on Fifth Avenue in the Flatiron District in the heart of New York City. Today's guests are Matt Miller, the president and CEO of AICP, which is, of course, the Association of Independent Commercial Producers, and Carolyn Hill, owner of Carolyn Reps and a member of AICP's Eastern Board. Welcome to both of you. Hello, hello. Thank you. As Gary Delabate would say. (laughs) Hello, hello. So, uh, I'd like to start with you, Matt. Um, 2016 marks the 25th anniversary uh, of the AICP Awards, um, of which you've been president for 21 years. 21 of those years. Um,
1: How has the show changed? Over the years. Uh, Well, dramatically. I mean, you know, interestingly enough, when when the show was first conceived, um, the the idea was to try to do something very different from all the other award shows. I mean, every other award show basically in the industry at that time defined the type of commercial by product category. So almost every show at that point was best automotive ad, best beverage ad, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it sort of looked at it that way without really defining what they were getting at, you know. Was it, you know, a great marketing concept that had a decent execution? Was it an awful marketing concept that had a great execution? And you never really knew what actually brought that piece to life and made it win. Mm-hmm. And when the Clios actually stumbled and um, and became a real embarrassment to the industry, which is worthy of a podcast in itself, that whole story, <laughs> um, you know, the ASCP board looked at it and said, you know, the problem with the award shows is it's focused on someone grabbing a trophy, someone getting a trophy. Mm-hmm. And we don't really analyze craft enough. And while while we looked at craft, meaning there are a lot of obviously executional crafts, there are also conceptual crafts. And there's also the collaborative craft that we all go through. I mean, we all know that without great ideas and you know and great planning and great execution by many you know and and great post and all of the elements that go into it we wouldn't have great pieces so the SCP show was really born out of the thought of if we could create a way to honor craft we'd be doing the industry a great service and in doing so we actually you know took a page out of the book of another Award show that was fairly successful, the Academy Awards, because when you look at that, that's basically a craft show. So you know, in doing that, um, it was it was a really important point of differentiation that we were going after—a real way to honor um, the crafts people in this industry and make it a learning tool. People aspiring to look at those crafts and say, "Wow, how do I even make it better in the next year?" and look back year after year. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think probably the most significant piece that really gave us the boost was you know, when we were looking for a venue that could be the venue to, to really host that kind of craft show and give us the gravitas we were looking for, we went to the Museum of Modern Art mm-hmm. and said, could we have our party here? You know, that was really the idea. And we were just lucky enough that the curator of um, the film department at that time, uh, Lawrence Cardish, heard what we were trying to do, was, you know, a true scholar of film and a big fan of advertising, or as he called it, small films of persuasion. And when we (laughs) talked to him about having the party there, he said, well, actually, why don't we do this event in conjunction with my department and each year if you actually create a collection that you're talking about creating of all the various crafts we'll put it in our permanent archives mm-hmm. and for us that was the aha moment of saying well you know what not only can we actually do this we actually have a venue that makes sense. We have almost, you know, an endorsement that gives credibility to this, but we can be the anti-award show. We can do away with trophies. We can do away with acceptance speeches. We Mm -hmm. can just get into it and let people let the work wash all over them and look at it as a, a compendium of the year in one piece. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the style that it's remained in the last 25 years. So, w- was the first show at MoMA? The first show was at MoMA. Oh, okay. The only the only shows that were not at MoMA were during a, a five-year uh, construction phase, uh-huh. and you know we were lucky enough to continue the relationship with MoMA and actually have Larry Cardish at the Met, which was you know not a bad backup plan. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Having him at the Met actually introducing us and, you know, and cementing that relationship that the work continued to be part of the MoMA archive.
2: I love when you said somewhat recently, I forgot what we were talking about, but you said that you stopped by the museum and they were running our show from like 1997 or something. And you were like, that really does reflect that year yeah. and how they will like, they do that. They show our show. Like yeah. during the week, I think, right? Yeah, well, I,
1: I think I think what's interesting is when you are dealing with a museum and you're dealing with curators, they they take the pieces they acquire very seriously. I mean, curators do build a collection for the museum and that is what the museum is known for. So when they acquire each year's show it becomes part of their collection, and you know, just like the artwork you see on the walls at MoMA, you're only seeing about twenty percent of what MoMA owns. Yeah, um, so they've got things in storage, and it's up to the curators in the various departments to decide what to bring out, and what they want to display, and how to actually tie all of those pieces together for the museum goer's experience. Mm-hmm. You know, in the same way, we will get you know, the catalog of screenings within the film department for a given month. And, you know, it's not odd to see that, you know, on a Wednesday, there's a Fellini movie at, you know, 1 p.m. And then at 3 p.m., there's the 1994 AICP show. And then at, you know, 5.30 p.m., there's, you know, North by Northwest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is interesting is, you know, some years ago, I used to try to swing by and just be a fly on the wall. It was amazing how many people would show up to watch the, the year in advertising of any given year. But what it really tells you is something you know much more important, that by making a collection of a certain year, you understand that advertising is, in fact, not only a reflection of culture, but a reflection of everything socially that we understand. What are the tools that we use to connect with consumers? We use the the vernacular that people use, the styles that they're used to, we make it feel like it's part of of the Culture. fabric of society. Yeah. And in, in that, you know, you go back and you look, you know, 10 years later and the pieces in that year feel dated and not in a bad way in right. an appropriate way right cuz they and, reflect the zeitgeist of the day and and ultra-like. in all elements hairstyles right. clothing the right. way people speak the music that's used yeah. even even the energy in which things are cut and and even the products that are being shown right. so all of that weaves together to create a certain year and you know a real compendium a time capsule of that year and and the filmic elements that we use as an industry to communicate with consumers. And, you know, there is a really interesting aspect when you see those pieces lined up. And now going into the 25th year of having that archive is a very interesting and and I think very significant um, study of our culture.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. Well, we're doing, uh, I think we're starting this week or last week, Throwback Thursdays. And we're taking Uh some of the old work that we've done going back 20 years, you know, commercials. Yeah. And just the look of the commercials. Now, we mostly do a lot of color grading at Nice Shoes. So it's really amazing to see how just the, the change in look
2: Our art also speaks a lot to culture because great advertising creates culture. Most advertising just reflects culture. I think that the show has done a really good job of honoring that which creates culture and then makes it become its own art. And that's exactly why Momo would Mm -hmm. be so involved in it. But it's funny because this kind of thinking then was like totally verboten. I mean, this was still when... Most of the feature directors who didn't come from advertising wanted just nothing to do with us, right. or they didn't understand it. And now, I think, as we're just talking about Matt going to Sundance, it's like I think filmmakers today, budding filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, or what they they want to be involved with brands. They want to be involved with advertising. The idea of advertising has been able to change and evolve and sort of mimic what we know as the feature business. But see, all of that has just become the communications business right. and the content business. Right. So as the lines blur, we're in a position of strength because we're, we're where the money is. Mm-hmm. And if you look at like, the slates of what's happening and what's approved in Hollywood versus how many branding films are approved globally, it's a right. pretty big difference, sure, I think, sure. in
0: opportunities for people. Matt, talk to me about the next awards. How did that come about, and, and what are the next awards all about?
1: Well, I, I think was what was interesting with, with the evolution of the show was, you know, when we started, we tried to define what we wanted in there, right? So, you know, we talked about the idea of the things that you could enter in the show were commercials that were aired on broadcast television during a certain time period, right? That, you know, within our call for entries, that's what we explained as the rules. And it became obvious that some years later, we had to redefine that to include this thing called cable television, which wasn't even thought of as being important in 1992. And, you know, shortly after we added in theatrical release pieces, because that wasn't thought about because we were talking about broadcast. And it was a few years later that we kind of said, you know, things are moving too quickly. And the fact is, if we're talking about linear storytelling and the craft of linear storytelling, who cares what screen it appears on? If it's great editing, it's great editing. If it's great sound, it's great sound. If it's great cinematography, it's great cinematography. So we basically dropped all of that, as long as it was truly a piece, and at that time we actually defined it as being two minutes or under, which we've played with in in more recent years as we've gone into more long-format pieces. But we basically dropped... All of the barriers, as long as it was as it was real, it was you know contracted by a client, a real marketer, and released in a commercial way to be out there as as marketing. But what was interesting was even as we did that and felt very progressive, and we really were the first show to not put new media in a ghetto. <laughs> We didn't Mm. throw it over here and say, oh, here's our new media titanium plutonium category. Mm. We actually said, if it's great storytelling and great craft, it's great craft. And it should go head to head. But in doing so, we also recognized that all of a sudden, the industry was doing things that weren't linear storytelling. That were some interesting other pieces and ways of telling marketing stories that weren't using a linear story. Mm-hmm. And so we were starting to see things on the web. We were starting to see experiential pieces. We were starting Social. to see like all these things come about. So the first thing we did is say, let's have an experimental category in the show. And we just called it Next. And it was like, let's see what we get. We are mm-hmm. not going to define it. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be this sort of odd thing that we call next. And it's all things that don't fit in the other categories. And we did get some very, very interesting work. And it was so interesting that what we realized was putting it up on the screen didn't work in the way linear storytelling did. When you see a linear story on the big screen, you get it, right? You view it, you're sort of, you know, hopefully engaged by it and you get it. There were many things going on with sort of like HBO's Voyeur, where, you know, it was projection mapping and it was telling a story and there were all sorts of things going on at once that needed a little bit of explanation. So one of the things we did is we took a daytime series that we had used for different types of lectures and the winners in the next category came and explained their pieces And we said, wow, well, that's kind of interesting. But what we also started to see was that those pieces didn't really line up. They were all kind of different. So then we said, well, why don't we do a few different categories? And interestingly enough, um, one of the big fans of the first year of us doing that was David Lubars um, at BBDO. And he had really just started at BBDO. And You know, I kind of said to him, well, we would love you to chair this thing. Why don't you pick a jury and you do this and this is what we're going to do. And we started building on the categories and got into the idea of, you know, of, you know, looking at, you know, web-based films made for the web, as well as websites, as well as integrated campaigns. And, you know, through the years, we've just built Built that up and gotten a a whole um, host of people to act as our jury presidents in a real high-level marquee way. So we went from, you know, Lou Barris to Jamie Barrett to um, Bob Greenberg to Ray Inomoto to Kevin Roddy to, you know, just a a host of other people, David Droga and um, and. Rob Riley more recently, and this year Jeff Kling, and I'm sure I'm missing a couple in there. But mm-hmm. um, but what we, what we started doing is this is a really interesting quote, for lack of a better term, crowdsourcing experiment. If we put those guys at the top and let them pick the chairs of the juries and then let those people who are chairing each of those juries pick their own people we're going to get people that we would never normally get especially when we dig into places like experiential and like you know we don't really know who the who the great experiential media people might be we know some of them doing the more high profile work within the industry but we felt like we could dig down deeper and so as we now have embraced social and and mobile and you know and various other levels the show's grown into now 11 categories but we still kept in the core of it this aspect of talking about the work as well so where the show is a craft show this is a show about emerging platforms Mm -hmm. so it's really Mm -hmm. about how new platforms are both developing and being utilized, and more importantly, as we create films and set the pieces up and make people set them up in case study films and explain what they did and how it worked, you walk out of there not only being inspired by the work, but thinking about it a little bit differently. You're thinking about it about the way people approached a certain project, and you're thinking about it having just watched films Uh, with the judges in there, explaining what it is they were looking for, which in itself is pretty interesting because a category can change year to year as it evolves in what judges think are standout qualities within the utilization of that platform. So the Next Awards in itself has become this real inspirational piece for the industry as we move forward and utilize our skill sets on these different platforms. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, I think the entire industry is very aware of, very inquisitive about, and should be taking very seriously because that's our future. Mm -hmm. Speaking of
0: next technologies, we were speaking before a little bit about uh, VR. There's a lot of buzz about virtual reality out there. Uh, Samsung just announced that they're going to be building a dedicated VR studio here in New York. It was an announcement at Sundance. Um, it's just more and more stuff going on in the VR realm, of course, New York Times as well as a bunch of other media companies that are kind of toying with that. What do you see out there as it relates to advertising with this particular technology or any other sort of leading, bleeding edge technology and maybe as it relates to Next?
2: <laughs> well, I'm I don't know I'm hardly a VR expert, but I do know a bit about AR because my company Bent is developing and patenting technology on AR. The reason they've chosen to go in that direction is because of the not that you don't need the glasses. So, I think with VR it can work for installations for specific purposes in high traffic areas. It kind of reminds me of the hoopla around the 3D TVs, which, honestly, I was all over because I went to one of the presentations that ESPN did. Were you there? Where they were showing, like, how it worked for golf. And It was, like, the first time in my life I saw golf as a sport Mm -hmm. because they showed it in, like, real 3D. No, I'm serious. How else have you seen it? Not at all. And so, well, I mean, like, on a flat screen TV where you're like, Mm -hmm. I don't understand how you're watching this. And then you go to a 3D experience and you're like, oh, my God, I understand golf. Like, I kind of get it as a sport now. And I think ESPN and some other people put a lot behind 3D. And then the consumer purchase of the monitors wasn't really there. Right. So with VR, I kind of understand that people are in this world of, oh, wow, look what we found, da-da-da-da-da. But I don't know that I understand what the applications are beyond, mm-hmm. beyond.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, it's funny. I I see, a, you know, many of those things differently. I, you know, three D. I actually from the beginning I said this isn't going to work, and the reason I felt it wasn't going to work specifically for home use was that um, television is still a social experience, and no one wanted to wear goofy glasses and sit around the <laughs> couch together, right. and it just <laughs> felt like there was a blockade in there that that was preventing it from being. Um, Something that that was really adaptable to the, to the home, except in gaming, where it is an individual, personal experience, where you know serious gamers would get into it and and appreciate that whole piece. Right. Um, AR I actually th- see in in a in you know probably the most practical way, and I've seen some demonstrations that are really awesome, that are um, v- very practical in their utilization right now. Everything from you know, seeing an architect you know, giving a presentation and having a flat piece of paper that people can hold up their, their device, whatever it is, a, an iPhone, an iPad, whatever it happens to be, and shoot it, and all of a sudden now it's a 3D model. And they can actually see a 3D model of what it is they're about to plunk down X billions of dollars to build. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those types Mm -hmm. of examinations through AR um, are are today are very, very practical, hands-on utilization in a business-to-business environment specifically. VR, I actually see with, with a pretty bright future as we've... You know, started to delve into it. This year, in fact, we do have a VR category in the next awards I was gonna ask because you we that. started to see a lot of interesting pieces developing last year, and more and more um, current film companies that have specialized in commercials and, and other areas actually diving into it headfirst. So, last year at the AICP Week Base Camp, we actually had an expo on VR and had some really interesting pieces, some of them more demonstrational and entertainment-based, some of them actually branded pieces that did show something different and told a different story. I think the first people that are really jumping onto it and using it practically in marketing tend to be entertainment groups. So, you know, you see uh, you know the Avengers piece and you see the Game of Thrones piece and you see things that actually bring you into another dimension of an entertainment property for superfans. Mm-hmm. And so now there's there's the impetus to want to go out and buy the goggles or at least use the cardboard right. in order to experience it because you have the superfans built in. Mm-hmm. But There is a level of storytelling, an immersive level of storytelling that is possible through VR that is not possible on any other platform because it is so real. It is so personal. And the story that can be told, um, you know, is there, there are two different ways. Right. One is, you know, the director making a film and you just having the control of where you're looking within that film. And many different things existing in 360 degrees in a 3D format that's very immersive, but you're following their storyline. And then there's the other pieces that are, we're only just starting to see them, that are much more interactive. So visually, you can focus on certain pieces and, and all of a sudden blow down that road. Now it's going to open up a whole other window, and you're actually controlling where you're going within the story. And so I think we're only first starting to see the storytelling capability in VR, which is, is not a gimmick, but is actually a tool that no other aspect of storytelling can achieve. Mm-hmm. The question is going to be, When will the hardware penetrate the market to a scalable amount where marketers especially invest big enough in it to feel like they're going to hit enough of an audience where it makes sense? And I think, you know, I do think Carolyn's right. I mean, the first place you penetrate in anything like that are gaming people and people who are really into porn. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean it's, it's like the, it's like the PCR, right? It's like, you know, where else is it gonna go? But right. those are the people who are gonna, you know, first plunk down a couple of hundred bucks for, you know, high-end Oculus goggles. Right. Right. Then then you're just gonna get into the other storytelling. So, you know, the scalability may happen on that level there, but I think what we're already seeing is that, you know, directors are telling amazing stories and now we're also seeing you know the editorial aspect as well so you know the new york times Mm -hmm. having features within the magazine section and then blowing it out in a real life way and a film that that backs that up and tells a story on a different platform and does some things Mm -hmm. last last week or two weeks ago or it all all blurs at ces Mm -hmm. i um Sat through a couple of really interesting um, VR discussions um, with with uh, Jack Myers and you know uh, his whole media platform, and he has this you know whole web of people. But a lot of the people with the networks were talking about applications that are not future, but like happening now, such as um, ABC Sports saying, mm-hmm. you know, for a basketball fanatic, we can put you courtside stream live games right. mm-hmm. you can be sitting front row wow. at Madison Square Garden around. and buy season tickets mm-hmm. and be in that game mm-hmm. you're in the front row mm-hmm. and you're just streaming it to your home mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and you know they can sell that package as either an individual game or a season ticket right. you know um and they were talking about their experience they played around a little bit with that I believe at um the US Open last year in golf speaking about golf yeah. where you you know it was more than it took you know what Augusta does with IBM and giving you camera angle options mm-hmm. online to a whole different level of utilizing yeah. the 100 plus cameras mm-hmm. that they have spread out across the golf course and allowing you the control through a VR application where you're seeing Different angles and a three D aspect to it that you couldn't experience any other way. So I think we're just scratching the surface on what can be done using that technology and the storytelling capabilities. So have
0: you seen any brands demonstrate VR in marketing? <laughs> yeah, I
1: thought I thought one of the interesting ones last year that we had at our base camp on on exhibition was Dos Equis. and mm-hmm. you know so they had you know what would a party at the most interesting man in the world's house look like, (laughs) right? right? So, you know, you experience this thing where his guests start showing up and his guests are as interesting, eclectic, high society, artistic people as you would think would show up at a party at this guy's, you know, incredible 14th century castle. Right. And then all of a sudden (laughs) there are fire jugglers and, and tigers and all these things. And, you know, it is a spectacle. But, you know, you walk away going, yeah, I just experienced what hanging out with the most interesting man in the world really is like. So it gives the ability to have another dimension into, you know, understanding who he is. So was that
0: through Oculus? Or was that through Samsung or or
1: that Google was, Cardboard or? Um, How did you view it? I've I viewed that on um in uh, on an Oculus device, but it was an mm. Oculus device that you know had a Galaxy in it, so it probably could have been driven in Cardboard as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm. the the one aspect of um you know since we're at Sound Lounge, one <laughs> one aspect of of VR that is so important is audio, right? Because yes. it really does. You know, that is a really huge element to being immersed in the experience. Mm -hmm. If you don't get that audio right, you're just sort of looking at at a 360 Mm -hmm. film. And it might as well be, you know, a viewmaster. Right. You know, but, you know, when you get that audio right and are really immersed in it, that's a whole different game.
0: I'd like to talk a bit about trends in production, specifically geographic trends. Matt, you spend a lot of time traveling these great United States. Where's everyone shooting these days, and what's driving those decisions?
1: Well, look, I, you know, I think that there, there's an ebb and a flow um, to how production happens in in um, in this business, and there are two, you know, driving factors. That you know, one is sort of an evergreen, which is you know, where are your most um accessible crews and equipment and facilities to shoot. Yeah. You know, even though, you know, these days the the on location numbers just keep going higher and higher. So, I I think we're maybe at 20% of production days uh, in the United States are actually done on a stage. Mm-hmm. Everyone is using locations and it's more realistic, easier setup, quicker setup ultimately less expensive if you can actually pull it off correctly because you're not building big sets. Mm-hmm. Not that that doesn't happen, but yeah. when it doesn't need to, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen. So, so LA tends to still have about 50% of the market share, mm-hmm. and I don't think that changes, only because you have the depth of crew coming across media platforms that work on commercials and all the equipment that's there. Right. Um, but there's certainly an ebb and a flow to um, production chasing incentive dollars and i think the states have really played a role in incentivizing people to come and shoot in their states because you know it allows production companies to stretch the media dollars um further as marketers are faced with the dilemma of needing more and more content and therefore allocating less and less budget to things that maybe you know Still ambitious enough, where they want it to be sticky to the audience, and they want it to be passed around virally. So they still want it to be great, but they're allocating less money. Right. So you know you have this aspect where certainly the incentive dollars, when used appropriately, can can actually. Add to being able to successfully execute those pieces. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that is certainly what's happening from a geographical standpoint. Mm-hmm. But, you know, mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, with that all being said, all of what we're talking about, about new platforms and the way you execute um, mm-hmm. is definitely an adjustment and people realigning their skill sets to be able to Achieve what needs to be achieved to fill the various pipelines for marketers and be all over the place, mm-hmm. uh, being mm-hmm. able to tell stories in different ways for different platforms. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think there are you know, there are a lot of challenges happening, but you know a lot of opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. Carolyn, you're I finding think, that? Well,
2: I think building upon what Matt's saying is that you've got global resources attacking. Every advertising market in New York, in New York, and, and the United States. So, what I'm, what I mean by that is that people are looking for resources globally, and not just American. I always say I'm like, if we had that law that they had in Brazil, we'd be millionaires. Yeah. <laughs> Where they, you know what I mean? You have to partner with a, you either have to partner or loan out your talent to mm. the companies there. I mean, it's really screwed up their whole business. So, don't get me wrong; it's like not really the best thing because we're a capitalistic society, and we're trying to everyone's trying to do the best they can for the client. Sometimes that means you need to do your animation in Poland, with you know the the people up there or whatnot. And I've seen a lot going to Canada because of the thirty percent discount. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the upside, I was talking to Ruth, who heads up the AICP Southeast chapter earlier, because actually I'm her rep and uh-huh. uh, for, for Pogo, and uh-huh. um, she was telling me that they are doing so well with television that um, that talent, acting talent, has gone there. And so whereas they were always bidding the dual casting with either Atlanta and then New York and Atlanta and LA, that they've had a lot of success doing the <clears> castings <throat> just in Atlanta because so many people have moved there because they know the shows are shot there. Mm. And then as far as crew goes, she said it's very difficult to get location scouts now because the location scouts take the feature work and there's tons of feature work going in there also. So they've done a really good job. Atlanta, you know, Atlanta and Georgia have just done a really good job of marketing themselves to
1: the business. And you know, what, what it is interesting about the incentives, it's, it's not just the dollars. Um, it has to work all the way around. And, you know, a, a story about Atlanta specifically, I mean, last year I was down there and, um, and around the corner from my hotel is this great restaurant um, that you know, best fried chicken in town. But <laughs> w- went there sat at the bar and the bar was just packed with people. And yeah. everyone's sort of talking and uh-huh. this and that. And the bartender you know, sort of started going down the bar. What show are you here shooting on? Yeah. And people are talking about the movies that they were there doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, this person, oh, I just flew in from LA last yeah. night and I did this and I did that. And the bartender actually saying, Well, you know what? We just appreciate you being here and appreciate your business. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the most important thing that that makes an incentive work is the idea that the government and community is behind and welcoming of the economic uh, infusion of money that's coming to that area, mm-hmm. and I think that it's really interesting because you know in places like Georgia and Louisiana and and many markets that before they had an incentive had a you know a very small percentage of production work there. Um, you see that appreciation because they're actually seeing the growth in the economy. Whereas in places like New York and California, when you look at the incentive programs, it's much more complicated because the politicians and the legislators, even the ones that are behind it, um, have the uphill battle of people there saying, We've always had filming here. This is just a corporate giveaway.
2: right? Yeah. And,
1: you know, we right. have so many better places our tax dollars can go, and they don't care to understand the positive economic impact that bringing filming has on local employment, mm-hmm. local businesses, mm-hmm. you know, local hotels and delis, and all the various, you know, aspects that make up what has been known to be about a 2.5% times multiplier on every dollar spent by a government Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. you know the new york communities just get sick of seeing trucks parked on their street right that's what they get sick of (laughs) you know and they don't realize what it's doing nor do they care to and it's a very interesting and different mindset for places that have really had a, a cash infusion as opposed to you know larger cities that have always seen filming and never really realized that the economy for their filming community and the employment there has actually had a downturn in recent years and they need that that bolstering of of the business mm-hmm.
0: has new york found a, a new film commissioner
1: uh they're in transition yeah <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, they. I mean, you know, Luis Castro is doing a great job as an interim, mm-hmm. and you know, but he is, you know, as he says, I am very much an interim. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I am not the new film commissioner. Uh, of course, we have the
0: Super Bowl coming up next week, which is sort of like the grand presentation for for advertising. <coughs> um, is the Super Bowl still relevant uh, as far as like a big platform for for advertisers? hugely
2: I think more than ever
0: more than ever yes mm. absolutely
1: you know, you know the more that that um, that there is time shifting and the more that you know the networks are able to pull off the greatest scam of all which is <laughs> by selling marketers ad time for broadcast and then turning around and broadcasting the same show, on Hulu and other platforms without ads <laughs> right. is to me like the great you know, the greatest snake oil act I I've totally ever seen. Agree. Yes. But right. but the more that they pull that off and that becomes the norm, the tent pole events, the live tent pole events become much more valuable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just the Super Bowl. It's the mm-hmm. Super Bowl, it's the Grammys, it's the Academy Awards, it's the Olympics, it's it's the Yay, things Olympics. that you cannot time shift you want to see there mm-hmm. you're engaged in and where you can really make content that is appropriate to that environment you know and you know we we start to see more and more custom commercials being made specifically for those tentpole events and i think that's only going to grow and especially now that you know marketers have seen that you know they're not just airing the spot once on that show but they're figuring out Social ways to to yep. release them either before or capitalize on them after, and create an entire That's exactly marketing right. strategy mm-hmm. around sort the release of, of that piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. You know, it 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 makes their ad into an entertainment property.
2: Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, you know,
1: and if they get it right. You know, it's it's really fantastic, and if they get it wrong, that CMO has a lot less than 18 months. Right. So you know, it really, it's, it's a it's a gamble. It's a it's you know a, a gamble that has paid off for many um, in spades. Mm-hmm. And
2: that, like he said, they're making it bigger than it is. It's the spot, but then they're bring making other things around that mm-hmm. and trying to use that as a platform and springboard to talk about themselves. And
0: then you've got companies are agents like Droga right with Newcastle was it two years ago where they were not um, you know but they ended up doing this viral campaign as if you know if they were you know yeah 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 uh, Yeah. and that ended up turning to be more popular to a large degree that got picked up sure
1: well they have done three of them right they did the one with Anna Kendrick that was Mm -hmm. really funny and wildly successful and they did the one that I thought was the funniest because they mocked the Doritos piece Mm -hmm. and they, (laughs) they made their own crash the super Doritos thing that, you know, everywhere you looked and there was a bag of Doritos, there was um, Newcastle in it, <laughs> and you know and there were Newcastle everywhere. Right. So they weren't going to win that, but they got it out there. And then they got the crowdsourcing piece, right? So they they put right. that out there and got the forty brands and and right. the whole thing. It, you know, it, it' brilliant. I mean, yeah. it, really brilliant way to sort of mock the hoopla. And the irony, of course, is that Anheuser Busch has the exclusive beer <laughs> rights to advertise in the <laughs> Right, Bowl, right, right. So none of that could ever run anyway, yeah. even if they right. had the money. It right. was never going there so right. i mean it was an ultimate ambush and you know and really did pay off because they got you know quite a bit of attention out of it just uh, a
0: couple of quick fun questions um apple tv or roku or Netflix? <laughs> through a smart tv or through a, or through one of the boxes
2: uh i have a smart tv okay. but i do go through fios right now Okay. I mean, I need to be watching advertising-laden television, which mm, I actually enjoy doing. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice.
2: So uh, I mean, but my brother swears by his Roku. Mm-hmm,
0: so. mm-hmm. I,
1: I have three different platforms. Okay. I um, I use on one television um, a TiVo system, a smart the new TiVo box, which basically has all of that those platforms built into it. Mm-hmm. I have an Apple TV. Uh the new generation Apple TV, which is really quite phenomenal mm. on another set and um and the other one's just a basic samsung smart TV um, mm-hmm. I do have to say, I think that the Apple TV currently is the superior um integrator, and I think we've only you know especially with this new generation touched on the surface of what they're planning to mm-hmm. deliver through that box
0: mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm
2: good cuz i just bought more of their stock today
0: <laughs> <laughs> panthers or broncos
2: hmm mm. as long as it's not the patriots i'm fine with it <laughs> so patriots
1: <laughs> I, I say broncos okay i think i say
0: broncos too
2: I just want a good game And great commercials And then I'm fine I love it I love it
0: Alright um, Alright I want to thank uh, Both of our esteemed guests today Matt Miller and Carolyn Hill For spending time with us And for such a great conversation Thank you As well Fantastic. You. Um, The Storyboard Podcast Is brought to you by Nice Shoes and Sound Lounge Executive producers are Sean Grace and Anthony Pichette With producers Paul DeCames And Taylor Maggard Audio engineering by Miles Regan Aaron Kelly and camera operation by Andrew Orlandi. Thanks, everyone. That's a wrap, and thanks so much for listening.